The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. It can be found on page 911 in the Black Bibles. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he immediately took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by your own prayer or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, 
and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, have, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Becca. I'm preaching over here, mixing it up a little bit, exploring the space. Um, my name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King. It's great to be with y'all. Um, Christ the King is a place that is not just a place to be seen. We want this to be a place where you are known. And we believe that. We want that because we believe that God, he knows us. Um, he knows all that's true about us and welcomes us to join him. And so let's do that now uh, together in his word. Let's pray and then we'll do that together. Father, thanks so much for this time to join you in your word and we pray that you would help us to see who you are in it uh, and we pray that you would reveal to us who we are and our need for you. We ask that you do this by the power of your spirit for our good and for your glory and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so a lot of you know that Clay Holland, who was uh, the senior pastor here, is still on staff here at Christ the King. And I, I, some of you probably been curious, like, how's that going, having the senior pastor still around? And I want you to know it's been a huge blessing to me. Uh, Clay has really helped me in a lot of ways in this new role, and I'm very, very thankful for him. And I want you all to know that. Um, and one of the things that we do together, and one of the ways he's helped me is on Tuesdays at 1 o'clock, Clay and some of the other men and women on our staff meet with me and we'll talk about the text that I'm going to preach on and kind of um, study the, the, the sermon together. Clay told me a story about him from right after he graduated from college that I wanted to share with you. So Clay Holland, I want you to imagine him fresh out of college, bulging calf muscles from his soccer days, flowing locks of hair. So Clay was... Um, a waiter after he graduated and he told a story about he, there was this group at a high top table they ordered drinks full meal dessert and had a great time talking to him and Clay's kind of thinking all right when it, this is going to be a, probably a pretty good tip they clear out and he's going up to, to clean up after them and he's walking up to the table and he sees a $20 bill on the table great goes and picks it up and he opens up the $20 bill and finds out it's not a $20 bill. Instead, inside is a quote from this passage that we just read and it says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. And then it's a four part how to become a Christian tract, Bible tract. Now, that's like really convenient for Christians, right? How does that strike you? I mean, it is true a person's soul is more valuable than $20, but come on, I mean, y'all, there's something fishy about that, right? Like y'all, <laughs> and what I think that this gets at is something that we're prone to doing in the church, what, they, what these folks did with their, with their Bible tract, and it's, we are very prone to divorcing the, a deed of God's grace from the word of God's grace. Deed of grace, word of grace. And the irony of using this verse with Clay's fake $20 bill Bible tract is that Peter and John in this story, when they say this, they're not divorcing a deed of grace from the word of grace that they're about to preach. 
In fact, what they do is they take care of somebody's physical needs and their physical body. And in doing so, then they highlight the word of God's grace afterwards. So the highlight is no doubt, and I want you to hear me say clearly, the highlight is the word of God's grace because no one can be saved apart from the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the words of grace are amplified with deeds of grace. And we see that all throughout the Bible with Jesus himself and his ministry and with his church. And yet in the church in America today, there are, it's almost like a split. You've got like some churches that are really heavy on deeds of grace. They really, they're very passionate about caring for the physical needs of people. And yet often it's in these very churches where the word of God's grace, where all of the Bible's counsel regarding salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not faithfully preached. And on the other hand, we have churches that are heavy on preaching salvation in Christ alone, but many of these churches often do not extend the good news of Jesus in their physical care of the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked or the sick or the prisoner among us. And so it begs the question, what do people need? Do they need the word of grace or the deed of grace? Yes. The answer is yes. And so that's what I want us to look at today. Two-point sermon. I did four last week, so we're kind of averaging out here. Um, Deed and the word. The deed and the word. The deed of grace and the word of grace. So first, the deed of grace. I want you to try to imagine what this scene would have looked like. It's really easy for us to kind of sterilize these Bible stories in our minds if we've heard them before. This is the first century. There's no, no wheelchair access. There's no wheelchairs. This man has been lame his whole life. He has to be carried from one place to another. He's not going to have a wife. He doesn't have kids. No job. His job is to sit outside the temple and ask people for money. He's carried to this temple, and he's sitting outside of what's called the beautiful gate, which would have been a, a striking Striking scene, 75 foot tall, bronze, double-doored gate outside of the temple. So you can imagine people walking up to this big striking door. They're going in to pray. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. Everyone's finished with their, with their, their job for the day. They've got supper to cook when they get home. People are busy. They're going and coming and they're streaming past this man who's a fixture there every single day. You can imagine it. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I wanted to say, and who are you streaming past every day? But um, as, I, as I began preparing for this, um, Jesus had to teach me once again that I am not most like Peter and John in this story. I'm most like the lame man. The way that Jesus taught me that is... Um, on Sunday, I lost total, complete hearing in my right ear. And the real reason why I'm standing behind this pulpit today is I'm gripping this because I'm kind of dizzy. And I've had scans and a lot of battery of tests, and we're still figuring out what exactly is going on with me. Um, 
But I can tell you that um, it's not, well, it's not COVID. I want you to know that. It's not COVID-19. Okay. <laughs> My PCR test, we're good. Um, but uh, it's been really scary for me this week. Like, I've had a lot of anxiety about this. I don't know if my hearing is going to come back. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't in these kind of cases. Um, and my question for you, and the question that I've been facing this week is like, what do we do with our weakness? Like, what do you do with it? You feel like you need to hide it? You feel like you need to be ashamed of it? I... Um, I think in, for a lot of us at Christ the King, we probably feel like we've got to smile through it, grin and bear it. I was a campus minister for seven years at the University of Texas, and um, the joke with our students is like everyone cries to John, like every student like, cried with me at different points, which is a total privilege um, to get to do that, and I'm... Looking forward to doing that with y'all whenever you need to. But um, I, uh, and I don't say this to shame them in any way, but I just noticed this pattern with young men, young women, that when they would cry, almost every time the first words out of their mouth were, I'm sorry. What's the assumption behind that? Why do we apologize for being weak, for being sad? I think it communicates that we think that our sadness and our weakness and our brokenness is somehow wrong. But it's not. Sadness is not wrong. Our sadness is something to share, not to be ashamed of. And the same is true for our weakness. Because listen, the cracks in our life are the openings God uses to get into us. God notices those cracks and he heads straight for them. He sees us in our helplessness. All through the Gospels, as you, the next time you read through like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I want you to pay attention how often Jesus is noticing people, how often he's seeing people, how often he's going up to people in their need. This is who God is. And by the way, this is what happened to Peter. Peter in John 1 verse 42, it says, Peter's brother Andrew brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. Jesus sees him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So Peter is immediately seen, known, and named by Jesus. And it just blows my mind that the story of Peter after like, the story of Jesus meeting Peter after Peter's denied him just boggles my mind. It's in John 21 where Peter has denied Jesus and yet Jesus still is coming after him. Jesus sees Peter out in the boat. Jesus calls to Peter. Peter comes ashore and Jesus is making breakfast for Peter. And he sits and he eats with him and then he says, Peter, as I am feeding you, now go and feed my sheep. Go and feed my sheep. Love people the same way that you've been loved by me. And Christian, what I want you to know is that you've been seen and known and named 
and saved. God loved you at your worst if you're a Christian. He knows you and has loved you at your worst. And so that means that there's like security in that. Like you can't, you didn't do anything to earn his love. You can't do anything to lose it. And so for Peter and John, their deed of grace, this is key, their deed of grace flows from a heart that's received God's grace. That's what they, it's what they say to them, man, we don't have any silver and gold, but what we have, the grace of Jesus, we give to you. And they give him the name of Jesus. It's from this posture that Peter extends that same regard. He, he sees the man, he says, look at us. And John does, it, says, John does the same thing. Look, like, look at us, we see you. They give the same regard that they've received in Christ. They're not streaming past him like the rest of the crowd. Thomas Merton puts it this way, the power of Christ, the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. They take this man by the hand, they care for his body, and in doing so, they point him to Jesus. Okay, so now I wanna ask you, who are you streaming past? This guy was right under everyone's nose right under Peter and John's nose. They've walked walked to the temple before. They've seen this guy before. Who are we streaming past? It's very easy to stream past people these days. Part of the challenge, I think, is because there's, like, when we think about needing to do good in the world, when to do a deed of grace in the world, it's kind of like, where do you start? There's so much. The news cycle is, like, crazy with how much there is that needs to be done. And I think part of the anxiety that we get from that is we've grown in our omniscience of all the brokenness in the world, but we haven't grown in our omnipotence. In other words, like we know a lot more of like the bad stuff that's going on, but we can't really do that much about it. And it feels like there's so much to do, so we don't know where to start. So for a lot of us, where we'll start is like, I can at least have like a broad impact if I post something about it. I'll post, I'll post something. That's not the worst. I'm not like here to like throw stones at posters, okay? Like maybe you need a stone to hit you, but but I don't know. Like that's not my main thing. My question though is, if you thought about how that's almost like the same, it's the secular version of what's been a problem with the church of divorcing word and deed. Posting, I'll give words. I'm not really gonna do anything about it. What I'd like for our church to be thinking about together as a family is what Mother Teresa said, which is that we can do no great things, only small things with great love. You can't do great things. There's great problems in the world. That's why we need Jesus. We can't do small things with great love. So the question then is, who is right under your nose to where you can like pour great love out to them? You know, it's, it's probably not as like um, flashy as like a, a, a big social media post to like go and fold laundry with a woman who's like postpartum in your Bible study and is like barely keeping it together. But that's great love to go and fold laundry with her. It's a little thing with great love. Or the lonely coworker who needs to be invited to lunch and listened to or maybe even to just get to know the, the names of some of the homeless folks who live at I-10 and Silver. 
It's one of them who's been here for like 10 years. He's a really great guy. Who's under our nose? You know who's under many of our noses is our children. Our children who we want to teach and say all of these like doctrinal truths to. But if we don't like, if they don't see us like connecting that with how we actually love them, why do we expect them to believe it? You know what I mean? I mean, y'all, I get so distracted with my phone, with my kids. I, I have to apologize to them for it all the time. I tell them like all this stuff about how God loves them and cares for them, and then I don't give them the noticing regard that God has given me. Because my nose is in my email, <laughs> my phone. Actually, my, my nose is not in my email. Don't email me. I'm terrible at email. Anyway. The power of what God does through our small acts of love. He, he has the power to use that. Um, Saint, Fra- Saint, Fra- Saint Francis of Assisi says this, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. I think that's helpful. Preach the gospel when necessary, use words. There's a a well-known pastor today, though, who says, preach the gospel when necessary, use words, is like saying, tell me your phone number, if necessary, use digits. Like, you can't have the gospel without words. And that's also true. However, to push back on that, I would say, while we cannot hear the gospel without words, people won't hear the words of the gospel without love. So look at Peter and John. They love this man. They give him dignity. They tell him the name of Jesus and then their love opens ears, his ears and everyone's ears for the gospel so they can preach the word of grace. Second point, the word. Imagine the scene. This guy that everyone knows is like jumping and praising God. He's clinging on to Peter and John, it probably looks like he won the World Series. You know, like the the hug jump thing, that's what he's doing. And Peter points from this man's physical healing to the spiritual healing that's now available that these people who are gathered need. And And this is key. In order to hear a word of grace, you've got to first hear that you need grace. And so he starts by telling them something shocking in verse 15. He looks at them and he says, guys, you killed the author of life. Now, remember who these people are. They're leaving the temple. These are all Jews, and this is Peter, a Jewish man, saying to Jews, hey, we all know who we believe the author of life is. Like, he is making a stunning claim. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus, you killed, you killed the, the, the same God, of, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has a son and you killed him. He's the author of life. You killed the author of life. These people who are so committed to their scriptures, to their religious practices are told, you totally missed it. Verse 22, they're told, the prophet that Moses said that God was sending The one Moses said, you'll listen to him and you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, you killed him. The one that Samuel and all the prophets proclaimed, you killed him. 
Verse 25, the offspring of Abraham through whom it was said all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You killed him. They are as spiritually crippled as the man, the lame man was physically crippled. And yet, here's the beautiful thing, God sees them. He sees them. And their only hope is to look at Jesus. And so Peter bookends this sermon after a deed of grace that he's done, talking about a servant, this prophetic servant who did deeds of grace. He begins referring, he refers to the servant from the book of Isaiah. And I'm gonna read a little bit about him from Isaiah 53. And as I read this, just remember that this was written 600 years before Jesus. Like this was written before Alexander the Great. This was written before Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. 600 years. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. By this servant, Jesus, this servant's wounds, your spiritual transgressions and iniquities are healed. Peter is proclaiming this to these people at three o'clock in the afternoon outside the temple while the scent of the afternoon sacrifice hangs in the air. There is another sacrifice that's been made. The greatest deed of grace ever. That God himself has become a man. And oh, by the way, people listening, you killed him. And so they ask, what do we do? In verse 19, he says, repent. Now, I, I want to, you're gonna hear me, sorry in advance, but I'm gonna repeat this over the years. I wanna tell you what repentance is because I didn't get this for a while. For a long time, I thought repentance was, here's the bad thing that I'm doing. I'm gonna turn from the bad thing that I'm doing. I'm gonna turn towards doing the right thing. That is not Repentance. Repentance is a turning. Even here it talks about repent and turn. But all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, whenever God describes repentance, even the Hebrew word repent, it means like to turn. It's a turning of the neck. Israel doesn't repent. They're they're called stiff-necked people. It's a turning, but it's not a turning from disobedience to obedience. Repentance is turning from disobedience to Jesus. That's repentance. Because when you turn to Jesus, what you see is that there is grace abounding for sinners like us. And it's that grace that then motivates us to obedience. We turn to Jesus. And in doing that, verse 20, it says, you will be refreshed by God's presence. You know how refreshing it is to be seen and known in your weakness and your frailty, to be known and loved? Refreshing, soul refreshing. So if you're not a Christian, that's offered to you, like today. Today you can come to Jesus 
and be refreshed in your soul. And Christians, if we've been seen and known this way, then we must do the same. And if we're unwilling to, then what does that say about what we actually believe that God has done for us? God will use your small acts with great love. You'll be surprised sometimes how he even does it. I'll close by telling you about my friend. He, uh, we became friends in seminary. When he was 16 years old, he'd been kicked out of his house. He was couch surfing. And uh, he told me that he found himself on the couch of one of his friends. And that day they were having a church pool party at this friend's house. And so my buddy is at the party, kind of hanging out. And an older man from the church knew what was going on in his life. And so he sits down and he talks to him. And in that conversation, he shares the good news of Jesus with him. And my buddy said he sat there and he listened. And at the end of it, the man stood up, he prayed for him and he said, can I hug you? And he said, okay. And he said it was the first time a man had ever hugged him. And he said, when he hugged me, then I knew that God actually could love me. Small act. Small thing with great love. That man's now a Christian, has 12 kids, by the way. <laughs> Side note. You should know that, though. That's pretty cool. He's a father now to 12 kids. Small acts, small things with great love. What could the Lord do, that, do with that through our church? As we try to do little things with great love here in this neighborhood, to our families, to our friends. Let's be a people who show that kind of love so that people can hear the words of grace that Jesus offers for salvation. Let me pray. Lord, we do want the world to hear and to know the good news of Jesus, and so we pray that you would give us um, lives that um, make the gospel seen and evident. Uh, help us to live the gospel and to speak the gospel in all that we do, and we can't do that without the fruit of your spirit, and so we pray that you give it to us, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.